snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host Yang Yong, right here in Beijing. If you are into something as epic, complicated, and plot-heavy as Game of Thrones, then the Chinese classic *Romance of the Three Kingdoms* is a tour de force that you should not overlook. Although the word romantic is entitled, we very seldom see love in *Romance of the Three Kingdoms*. Based on real person and events that took place during the third century, this historical masterpiece is a gritty, sprawling tale glutted with both gore and strategy. Best known as *Sun Guo Yan Yi* in Chinese, the saga is held as one of China's four great classical novels. Its influence on Chinese society is the equivalent of the influence that Shakespeare has in the Western world. However, despite the popularity of the abundant TV shows, movies, and video games inspired by *Romance of the Three Kingdoms*, people seem to pay less attention to the original book. Chinese American Zhang Zhu refuses to let it slide. Since 2014, this communication professional at Duke University has produced more than a hundred podcasts to retell the legend of the Three Kingdoms. Welcome to the Romance of the Three Kingdoms podcast. This is episode 102. Last time we left off with Liu Bei declaring himself emperor. In today's Inconquil, our reporter Shi Yu talks with Zhang Zhu to find out what fueled his interest and how he bridges this classic novel with non-Chinese audiences. Hi, Zhang. Thank you so much for talking with me. I have to confess that. Even though I grew up in China, my knowledge about this novel is extremely limited. Since it all came down to the video game called The Legend of Three Kingdoms, and I know lots of my <laughs> friends, <laughs> lots of my friends, you know, start to play the game Dynasty Warriors. So I'm really curious about what sparked your interest in that period of history in the first place. So I spent the first ten years of my life in China. So obviously,、uh, I was. Immersed in the you know popular culture, you know whether it's the、uh, the operas, the comic books, or the、uh, you know pingshu, the、mm -hmm. uh, storytelling on the radio. So you know I absorbed a lot of the Three Kingdoms that way. You know one of my strongest memories is you know listening to the story on the radio. You know with my grandmother every day、uh, during lunchtime, and then I started reading the novel when I was I think about six years old, six or seven. Wow,、uh, and you know, I remember、um, the book that I had belonged to my grandfather on my mother's side. So whenever we went over to his home, I would you know just read,、uh, flip through his、uh, copy of the book. So that's how I first got、uh, interested. And、um, I think also like my dad started reading the novel to me. Uh, as a way to、uh, try to get me to take a nap when I was little too, <laughs> so, <laughs> I was,、uh, <laughs> so I was exposed to it、uh, at an early age. So, could you give our listeners who are not familiar with this story a brief introduction of the Three Kingdoms? Yeah, sure. So, the novel was、uh, written by 
Luo Guanzhong, uh, or generally attributed to Luo Guanzhong. Uh, mm-hmm. It was written in the 1300s, but it covers the time period from the year 184 to 280, which spans the end of the Han Dynasty. Uh, so I think it's, it starts uh, in 184, and the Han Dynasty ends around the year 220. So the first 40 years or so covering the novel is all about how the uh, empire crumbles into a million pieces. And then uh, slowly, those pieces congeal back into three major kingdoms: the Shu, the Wei, and the Wu. And these three kingdoms then fight for dominance for the next few decades before they are reunited、uh, in the year 280.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and the novel, you know, what makes the novel really interesting、uh, to me is the、uh, bewildering array of characters. And battles and strategies and intrigue that really define this book.、Mm. Since you talk about there are lots of political intrigue and power struggle in Romance of the Three Kingdoms, I remember in one of your podcasts you talk about the Chinese novel actually resembles Game of Thrones. I mean, some people even compare Cao Cao. With Tywin Lannister, so I'm really curious about. <laughs> do you think, you know, Romance of Three Kingdoms is a Chinese version of Game of Thrones? In some ways,、uh, you know, I think you know, obviously Game of Thrones is written in a different era for a different type of audience. Yeah.、Um, so you know, I think you know, if, if you're just reading the text itself, you know, I think a present-day、uh, Western audience might find you know the Three Kingdoms a little.、Uh, Difficult to get into because it seems like it reads like a list of you know endless battles and things like that. Whereas I think there is more character development written into Game of Thrones.、Mm-hmm. But I, for somebody you know who grew up in China who are familiar with the characters already, you know I think that is they obviously have a different perspective on it. You know, so you know before I even started reading the novel, I already had. A passing familiarity with the characters. You know, you knew that you know Cao Cao was the shrewd, sinister one, and Guan Yu was the honorable one, and Liu Bei, you know, compassionate, and Zhuge Liang is the genius. You know, so all these character descriptions that are not necessarily overt in the novel itself, but have been fleshed out a lot、um, through popular culture.、Mm-hmm. So I think you know, when a Western audience who Don't have that background. Who don't have that context、uh, when they are first introduced to the novel, then they may have a bit of a tough time,、um, you know, just getting into it initially. So, since you're talking about characters, I mean, it's just like Game of Thrones. It has a lot of interesting characters, and they are really fresh out. So, do you have a favorite one in Romance of the Three Kingdoms? Yeah. So, you know, growing up,、uh, my favorite was always Zhao Yun. The general who served Liu Bei, in my opinion, he is really the only perfect character <laughs> in the novel. Yeah, like you know, he is. Yeah, he's courageous. He's handsome. He's you know, you know, he is、uh, an honorable man who cares about the common people. And you know, even like Zhuge Liang has you know some character flaws, like you know, yeah, being too over overly confident. But you know, Zhao Yun was always kind of the perfect man. You know.、Uh, But as I have, you know, become more familiar with the novel and you know learn more about the novel, as I've grown older, I've grown、uh, more appreciative of Cao Cao. 
obviously, you know, growing up, you know, I I saw Cao Cao the same way that I think a lot of people do, or you know, the way he's generally portrayed, which is as the villain.、Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as you learn more about the real Cao Cao, and I think I have、uh, come to appreciate what he was able to accomplish in his position. Also, understanding how his reputation has kind of been. Um, to a degree, slandered、uh, over the centuries. Indeed, I mean, for some people, they may regard another book, Records of Three Kingdoms, Sun Guozhi, as some sort of authentic account of that period of history. So, when compared this to apparently Luo Guanzhong favored the Shu, well, in Records of Three Kingdoms, the author had a different approach to tell this story. Yeah, and the and the records of three kingdoms. I guess you know, the author was a、uh, official serving in the Jin Dynasty court,、mm-hmm. and he, you know, because the Jin was the immediate successor to the Wei, which was founded by Cao Cao's family.、Uh, I guess they, you know, t- want to, you know, portray the Wei as kind of the legitimate successor to the Han. So that you know, they could say that the gene is then the legitimate successor to the Wei. So I think Cao Cao comes off better、uh, in the records of the Three Kingdoms.、Uh, although the author was also a former official in、uh, Shu, so、uh, he definitely has some bias in favor of Liu Bei as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. When I read this novel as a kid, I always wonder which part is real, which part is made up. Especially at the mention of the Battle of Red Cliffs, I was wondering, is that true? In broad strokes,、um, you know, the the kind of the general outlines of what's in the novel is more or less true. You know, that Cao Cao marched south with a huge army,、uh, mm-hmm. ready to conquer the south, and then Sun Quan and Liu Bei joined forces and defeated him at Red Cliff. And that led to the formation or the eventual formation of three kingdoms instead of one big empire. But you know, once you get into the details, you know, it, then it, you know, there's a lot of discrepancies between what's in the novel and what's real. For one thing, you know, in the novel,、uh, Liu Bei and Zhuge Liang get a lot of the credit or get most of the credit for、yeah. defeating Cao Cao. You know, they came up with the、uh, schemes and Dongwu generals and soldiers. They're just there. You know, they're just kind of Tagging along for the ride,、uh, whereas in reality it was Dongwu that did most of the heavy lifting. Yeah, and Zhuge Liang actually kind of played a、uh, relatively minor role once the coalition was formed. And then also、uh, the novel doesn't really get into talking about the fact that disease actually played a big role in defeating Cao Cao because in reality a lot of his soldiers died from pestilence、uh, because they were not. Used to the climate of the south, but that's not really addressed in the novel. So yeah, but it doesn't change the fact that Romance of the Three Kingdoms is really interesting story, since it has over one hundred chapters and stretches to a really long time period. Is there any particular segment or chapter that impresses you the most? Yeah, definitely. So my favorite part of the novel is. Uh, the part starting with、uh, when Liu Bei flees to Jing Province to seek refuge, and then going from there through the Battle of Red Cliff,、uh, and to, right to about the time when Liu Bei conquers the、uh, Riverlands to you know kind of begin his empire. Because I think that 
segment includes so many of kind of the most interesting scenes or episodes from the novel. You know, the stories like Liu Bei paying three visits to Zhuge Liang to meet him, or um, Zhao Yun, you know, saving Liu Bei's son at Changban Bo, and then uh, you know, of course, the Battle of Red Cliff, and then also Zhuge Liang, uh, you know, antagonizing Zhou Yu. Yeah, so yeah, so there's a lot of the, you know most I think the uh, most colorful stories in the novel are from that segment. Yeah, you just mentioned about Liu Bei visiting Zhuge Liang for three times, and how Zhao Yun saved his master's young son. They are all household stories. Even people who don't really get or don't like Asian Chinese literature, they know one thing or another. And I think that's why Romance of the Three Kingdoms is regarded as one of China's great classic novels, along with Watermark Jane, Journey to the West, and A Dream of Red Mansions. So in your opinion, what elevates this book to such a highly regarded status? For me, I think part of it is the epic scale. Uh, you, know, you mentioned earlier that you know, it spans such a long period of time. And I think, you know, that is something that definitely sets it apart from the other uh, three novels. Uh, you know, it spans almost a century and has a character of thousands. And, you know, it's such a long time span that the major characters that we're introduced to and then, you know, that we follow for two-thirds of the book, you know, they all die off, you know, for the last third of the book. Yeah. You know, and, that in, you know, in some ways you read it and you kind of realize how epic or how, you know, long history is, you know, that, you know, you have these great heroes and yet by the end of the novel, they are not even there anymore, you know. So I think that definitely uh, has uh, an impact. And then, you know, I think the fact that it's based on real history and mm-hmm. real people uh, also separates it from the other three because when you think about that, you know, it's plausible that, you know, something like the Battle of Red Cliff happened. It's plausible that, you know, um, somebody named Zhao Yun actually fought through a huge army to rescue, you know, his master's infant son. Or somebody like uh, Zhuge Liang, you know, actually basically, you know, worked himself to death, you know, in pursuit of his um, master's goal of reuniting the empire. You know, things like that. And I think the fact that they are real people and real history, you know, again, gives the novel an extra lift. And then, you know, and just think about like how it's different from, say, like the water margin, which also has a lot of characters. Yeah. So I was thinking about this the other night, and it occurred to me that, you know, the water margin, you know, is kind of all about impulsive action and dealing with an oppressive order by introducing some chaos. Uh, whereas, you know, the Three Kingdoms is kind of the opposite, where it's about patience and strategy and it's about you know trying to bring order to chaos so in that way it seems like the two novels are sort of opposites in the sense mm. that's probably why the novel is deeply embedded in chinese culture and chinese society you know is even one of chairman mao's favorite readings since he understood more about chinese history and chinese way of thinking from this book so can you be specific about some cultural references of this novel that people are still widely using today yeah sure one thing that i always remember is uh you know the part where Zhuge Liang antagonizes Zhou Yu three times and uh, in, in the end basically kills him 
by making him so angry at you know always being outsmarted by Zhuge Liang. You know, I remember when I was growing up, um, you know, my uh, parents and teachers always told me to not be so petty, you know, not be so narrow-minded as uh, Zhou Yu. <laughs> you know, so you know, so he, he kind of becomes this uh, you know stand-in for the idea of you know being petty or narrow-minded. Even though it's, it's kind of an unfair reputation <laughs> yeah. for him, for the real Zhou Yu, yeah. And then you know, um, Guan Yu being the embodiment of honor, right? Um, the the, uh, the fact that he had this agreement with Cao Cao that he was going to serve Cao Cao for a little while, but then he will leave. You know, once he find out where Liu Bei is, but he doesn't. You know, just take off in the dark of the night. He wants everything to be above board. And then also, and then later on, you know, because he felt like he owed Cao Cao a debt from Cao Cao letting him go, he uh, let Cao Cao escape with his life, too, when he had Cao Cao cornered at uh, Huarong Pass. So I think, you know, Guan Yu, you know, definitely has become ingrained in Chinese culture as, uh, you know, the symbol of honor. And talking about Guan Yu, you know, you know the uh, peach orchard oath with Liu Bei and Zhang Fei and Guan Yu, you know, I mean, you just mentioned oath in the peach orchard, and that's basically, you know, a stand-in for ideas of uh, fraternal, brotherly... Uh, Brotherhood. And, yeah, exactly. And there are so many idioms developed from the book. When you talk about Zhou Yu, immediately think about Zhou Yu da huang gai, yi ge yuan da yi ge yuan ai, something like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You are listening to Inconquil with Yang Yong. Our guest today is Zhang Zhu, a communication professional from Duke University in the United States. For the past few years, he has been working on a series of podcasts, which retells the Chinese classical novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms in English. Coming up, we will take a short break. When we come back, our reporter Shi Yu will continue her conversation with Zhang Zhu. Stay tuned for more. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. You just mentioned you start to read romance of the Three Kingdoms when you were still a kid, and I know a lot of people grew out of it when they reached a certain age. What prompted you to produce podcast three years ago? Why did you started to do that? Well, so a couple of years ago. I was looking for a、um, creative outlet. I wanted to do something creative, so you know, again, I thought about doing a podcast. And being Chinese and having lived in America for a long time, you know, I wanted to do something that bridges the two cultures. So I thought about what I could do in that arena. And there were already podcasts out there about contemporary China or Chinese history. So I didn't want to do another one, you know, in those areas. But you know, I remember you know growing up with the Three Kingdoms. So I thought, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but you know, I did, I was、uh, immersed in it for much of my life. So you know, I think I can introduce the Western audience to you know, this great work. You know, as you said, a lot of people you know grow out of it at some point at a certain age. But I think、uh, for me, you know, as I've grown older, you know, you come to appreciate different aspects of the novel. You know, like for instance, you know, when I was younger, you know, I was all about Zhao Yun and all about the battle scenes and、mm-hmm. things like that. 
but you know, as you as I've grown, grown older, you know, I have gained a greater appreciation for you know characters like Cao Cao or uh, you know other characters, and you know also for some of the uh, more the political things that were going on in the novel.、Mm. But it's translation the problem that you're facing when you produce this podcast, because Romance of the Three Kingdoms was written in classic Chinese, and some part of it is even difficult to explain in modern Chinese. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs>、um, you know, I am thankful that I read the book. I first started reading the book when I did,、mm-hmm. uh, because if I was to start reading the original Chinese version now. I would have a very tough time reading it, you know, <laughs> just because my Chinese is just rusty to begin with. Now and so, you know, when I'm translating the book, because I know the story pretty well, you know, when I'm translating, I'm not translating it、uh, word for word because you know part of it because I'm translating it to be a podcast, so、mm-hmm. it's not a you know exact line for line translation.、Uh, so that makes it easier, and I also. You know, I'm translating it into a more colloquial version, so that also helps、uh, make the process easier. And then w- places where I get stuck、uh, are often the passages where you know, we have the poems or really、uh, lengthy like letters or decrees. And for those, sometimes you know, when I need to, I will consult the existing English translations of the book, like the version by Moss Roberts. Which is really good and has many, many detailed footnotes explaining everything in the book. But the podcast you made doesn't sound like audiobook, or more like pingshu. You know, it's a traditional Chinese storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I vividly remember listening to the pingshu on the radio as a kid. So when I started doing the novel, you know, and try to think about how I would approach it,、uh, I knew I didn't want to just basically. Read the English translation of the novel, because I knew that would just be too dense for people to get into. So I thought, okay, you know, the Pingshu storytellers did such a great job of making the story come alive. You know, by injecting little、uh, pieces of commentary or some, you know, humor, and also just telling it in such a colloquial way. Uh, like he, they're just having a conversation with you, like you're just sitting there listening to them tell a story. So I wanted to take that approach.、Mm, that's really interesting because last time I checked, you have already produced over 100 episodes. I mean, how how could you maintain that pace without a moment of oh, I'm gonna give it up? How could you do that without interfering your daily job? <laughs> Well, so I thought about that when I was、uh, planning the podcast because I have definitely listened to my share podcasts that start strong and then after a while they just stop, right? Because the producer gets burned out. Yeah. And I definitely did not did not want that to happen. So I thought about okay,、um, well, it, it helps that you know instead of being on a topic that has no real ending. I'm retelling a novel, so there's a definite beginning and there's a definite end. So being able to see, you know, progress towards the end actually helps motivate me to keep me going、mm. because you know I can see, okay, I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer, and also it makes me feel a stronger sense of obligation to see it to the end. 
because you know if I'm just doing something that has no end, then I could pretty much stop any time. But if I stop now, you know I'm leaving the story unfinished, and I don't want to do that. So that's extra motivation.、Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing I did was、uh, after I started producing the podcast, and about a couple months in,、uh, figure out a pace that would、uh, work for me that would fit with my schedule. So I right now I release one episode a week for three straight weeks, and then I take a week off, and then I come back and I release three more、uh, weeks of episodes, and then I take another week off. So that helps, you know, building in the breaks. If I get too busy sometimes, you know, I can still see that oh, I have a break coming up in a couple weeks here. You know, so that helps,、uh, and then also I try to work ahead. Whenever possible, when I have vacation or during the holidays, when I don't have to worry about work, I would maybe try to get two or three episodes ahead in my production schedule. And then, you know, when I run into a really busy time or if I get sick for a week or something, then I don't have to worry about missing a week. You know, I'm still on schedule. Hmm, that's a useful strategy. When did you start to build that website, and how popular it is? The website. Was launched the same time as the podcast、uh, mm-hmm. because I needed to have the website to promote the podcast. And I'd say you know, the podcast, you know, I mean, it's definitely not you know a、uh, huge hit, but right now I'm seeing probably you know for between like seven hundred to a thousand downloads for each episode when it comes out, and it's starting to pick up more、uh, attention. So that's good. You know, and what's really、um, it helps keep me going too is that the people who are listening to the story are really passionate about it. They seem really interested in it. You know, I, I've gotten a lot of emails from listeners, and you know, they say that, "Oh, this is exactly what I was looking for," or you know, "I had heard about the Three Kingdoms, but you know, just never been able to really get into the book." But this is really helpful. You know, so. Un- knowing that I have、um, people out there who are genuinely interested in what I'm doing, and that what I'm doing is valuable to them in some way, that definitely helps keep me going. So, do you know where those people come from?、Uh, yes, the majority of them、uh, are in the United States, and then、uh, there are a significant portion in China. But then I also have people in places that I would not. Have expected before I started this project. So, for instance, I've gotten a fair number of listeners who live in Brazil.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gotten listeners in Scandinavia. So, it's just kind of all over the place. But you know, it's just interesting to see、uh, where you know these listeners are. And I, as a, in the process of communicating with them, I've also learned about interesting things. Like, for instance, in England, actually,、uh, so there's a theater company. That specializes in English interpretations of traditional Chinese stories,、mm. and、uh, yeah, and I think last year they performed a、uh, show based on the story of Lu Bu and Diao Chan. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so that was you know that was, that was just you know it's neat to see where the pockets of interest are. Well, since you're talking about the popularity of your podcast. Do you feel that the importance of romance of the three kingdoms has been underestimated? I mean, it does have a huge cultural impact in Japan and Korea and other Asian countries, but 
not so in the West. Do you agree with that? I think、uh, certain segments of Western society are aware and appreciative of the novel. So you know, anybody in the West who is interested in China probably have come across or tried to read the novel at some point. And the novel or the Three Kingdoms、uh, has a greater level of awareness in the West than the other classic Chinese. Novels, partly because of the video game franchise. Yeah, yeah. A lot of my listeners who have written to me said that they were first introduced to the Three Kingdoms through the video game, and then they started to look for the novel and found the novel hard to read, and then they found the podcast. <laughs>、uh, but I would say, you know, generally speaking, the degree of awareness of the novel in the West,、uh, at least in America, is not. That great,、mm-hmm. and that is a shame, and that is also, you know, a big reason why I started the podcast to try to introduce this great work to more people in the West. But besides video games and podcasts, is there any other way to help those people to understand more about classical Chinese literature? We're starting to see、uh, Chinese literature, you know, breakthrough in movies. You know, for instance, you know, I see the Red Cliff movie on Netflix. You know, over here in America. Oh, that、uh, one. I see, like, m- yeah, <laughs> I see movies like based on you know the Monkey King and things like that. So you know, that is a initial point of introduction, I think.、Mm-hmm. Um, but then you know, when you get into、uh, talking about you know how do you get them to actually like read the books, I think part of it is. Kind of getting them, helping them see past the levels of complexity、mm. that sometimes can be intimidating, you know, because the cultural references, the historical references, the names, the places, you know, all these things are kind of foreign to a Western audience, and it's hard for them to break through that wall sometimes. You know, I think that's part of the reason why. You know, a lot of people tr- who try to read the novel, the English translation of the Three Kingdoms, end up stopping. You know, my wife, who is American, you know, tried to read the novel and had to stop after a little while because she just couldn't get through the first, you know, ten, twenty chapters、mm-hmm. because that was when you know the empire was splintering into so many pieces and you had, you know, so many names、uh, being thrown at you. And you don't know yet, you know which one of them are really important, right? Yeah. But once you get past like the first twenty or so chapters, you start to see that things start to settle down, and you start to hone in on some of the major characters. You know, you get down to maybe about a dozen or so major characters who really matter, and then that's when you know the story really shines through. So one thing I try to do, you know, when I introduce characters in the beginning, is I tell them, okay, this person is important. Keep an eye on him, just so they'll put a mental pushpin next to that name. <laughs>、uh, and then you know, and then I try if it's like a minor character that the novel throws in there,、uh, and then kills them off a page later. Sometimes I may not even mention their name because why bother? It's just one more. Name that they <laughs> have to deal with, but then oh hey he's dead before you can even remember. And then、uh, the other thing I try to do is explain a lot of the cultural and historical references. You know Chinese literature and especially the Three Kingdoms are just full of them. 
And if you have no context for understanding those references, then you, you obviously miss out on a lot of the novel. So what I try to do is provide just enough information about those references to help them understand their meaning in the particular context that they're used in that particular spot of the novel. You know, I try not to get too bogged down in too much information going back into his ancient history or you know, explaining too much, uh, but just enough for them to understand its meaning in that particular spot and then move on. Mm. That's a really useful strategy when you start to introduce Asian Chinese culture. So since you have put so much effort in this podcast, when will finish this whole project? Uh, when will I finish it? Uh, let's see. Uh, it'll probably have another year and a half left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's I mean I I pretty much mapped it out when I started the podcast. Uh I did about 4 or 5 episodes and then I tried to break it down and see, okay, at this rate, you know, how long will it take me? And I figured out it was going to take me about four and a half to 5 years. So I think uh I am still on pace uh at this rate. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so when you finish that, will you make the whole series into an album? Do you have any future plan? The one thing I would definitely want to do once I am done with the whole project is to make sure that the content I've produced are preserved somewhere on the internet aside from just my website. Mm. Because I know what's going to happen is, you know, once I'm done producing the podcast, I'm not going to be updating the website as anywhere near as often as I do now. So what invariably happens to websites that are not kept up is that they die. Mm -hmm. So once I'm done with the podcast, I definitely want to think about how to preserve all that content in maybe multiple places so that down the road, somebody can access it if they want to. Mm -hmm. So after you finish this whole project, are you going to do more podcasts about Chinese literature? That's the plan right now. You know, we'll see what, where I am in a year and a half. You know, I think I, I'm want, I definitely want to take a little break uh, <laughs> once I'm done with the podcast. And then, you know, I do have an interest in, you know, doing something similar with the water margin. Wow, cool. You know, when I was deciding uh, to do this podcast, I almost almost decided to do the water margin instead. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I thought, you know what, the Three Kingdoms is, you know, like as you said, kind of on a higher plane, higher level than the other classical Chinese uh, works. Yeah, you so can't ignore that. Yeah, let's just start with the top one. <laughs> so can I ask you one more thing? Yeah. Do you have any English edition of Romance of Three Kingdoms could recommend to listeners? Uh, yes. The Moss Roberts translation, uh, which is just called Three Kingdoms, mm -hmm. uh, it's very faithful to the text, mm -hmm. uh, and it has so many footnotes that every cultural reference, every historical reference in there has a footnote, and I found that to be immensely helpful. Of course, you'll be flipping to the back of the book to the notes section constantly, but mm -hmm. you know, I think if you want to try to read an English translation of the book, this is the place to start. Another resource I would recommend is the website threekingdoms.com. That is the Bruett Taylor translation, which is an older translation than the Moss Roberts one. Mm -hmm. 
the problem with the original Brewer-Taylor translation was that it did not have any footnotes, so nothing is explained. But on this website, they have inserted a lot of the notes in line. So as you're reading, you will see pop-out boxes on the page pointing to different references on the page and explaining what this means and who this character was. And the other fun thing about this website is that they also allow people who are reading to leave comments as well on various spots of the website. So it's an annotated uh, version, and you're basically reading along with all the other people, and you can see some of their comments. It's kind of funny, like when you get to a really good translation of a particular poem, you you might see a reader leaving comments saying, Go, translator, go! (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. And they should definitely check out your podcast. It's quite useful. So thank you, John, for your time. Thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, yeah, thank you for talking to me. Zhang Zhu, the man behind Romance of the Three Kingdoms podcast, shares with Shi Ru his passion for this classical Chinese novel and how he helps foreigners further understand Chinese literature. If you want to know more about this project, you could find out his podcast on Apple iTunes or go to his website, threekingdomspodcasts.com, which is quite informative for anyone curious about the book. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting happenings in the literary world, and we will keep you posted. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account, China Plus, or download our podcast from the Apple iTunes Store. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Yang Yong. See you next time.